The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Thanks for downloading this week's State House Takeout. I'm Colin Young. Sam Doran is off this week, digging up his family tree on the Isle of Man. Elected officials love to talk about Massachusetts as a state that leads the way among others, but you won't hear anyone on Beacon Hill touting the fact that we're the only state in the country that doesn't have an annual budget in place for the fiscal year that started July 1. The two-week budget impasse doesn't seem like it's winding down, despite Senate Ways and Means Chair Karen Spilka saying Thursday the two sides are getting closer by the hour. One of the issues thought to be bogging negotiations down is immigration policy. Matt Murphy joins us now. Matt, you reported this week that the debate around immigration could be putting House Ways and Means Chair Jeff Sanchez in a tough spot. How so? That's right, Colin. Thanks for having me. And I think the later this goes without a fiscal 2019 budget in place, the more of a political problem this becomes for lawmakers, and particularly so for Ways and Means Chairman Jeff Sanchez. Sanchez, of course, trying to negotiate his first budget as Ways and Means Chair, taking over from uh, the veteran and accomplished uh, Chairman Dempsey, who had held that leadership role for uh, over six years. And he is both trying to prove to his colleagues and to Speaker DeLeo that he was the right choice for this job and deliver a, a budget that they can all vote for and vote for comfortably. Immigration, of course, has appeared to be a sticking point between the House and Senate, even though Senate Ways and Means Chair Spilka did suggest this week that policy was no longer a roadblock in these talks. But if we look at the immigration issue, Sanchez was both a sponsor or co-sponsor of the Safe Communities Act in the House. He comes from a district in Jamaica Plain in Boston where he's facing a primary challenge from someone who has made immigration an issue, even going so far as to protest outside of his office in recent weeks. And yet he has a Boston Speaker, DeLeo, who has said it's quite difficult, he thinks, in his view, to get an immigration bill through the House this week. And when we asked him whether or not he was torn between his dual responsibilities to his district and his, his job here as a member of leadership, which carries its own perks for his district uh, back at home, I think he made clear in his demeanor and his tone that this is not lost on him as he tried to stress that his constituents know where his heart lies, uh, even if the policy outcome here, whatever it may be, suggests otherwise. And Matt, whether or not a budget deal has been struck, Sanchez's counterpart, Karen Spilka, is planning to take the reins of the Senate next week, assuming the gavel from Harriet Chandler. How is that transition going to go down? That's right. We've known for quite some time now that this transition was likely to happen in the last full week of formal sessions, but we learned this week that it will actually take place at one o'clock on uh, July 26th, uh, the last Thursday uh, of full formal sessions for the month. And uh, it also appears that Spilka is trying to get this vote taken before they break for the year, but also uh, create as little disruption as possible. Uh, her aides and staff suggest she's not planning any major shakeups, no leadership transitions. Senator Joan Lovely, the vice chair of Ways and Means, will try and run point for that committee. But uh, Spilka, in the, in the remaining few days of the formal session when she becomes president, will obviously still be intimately involved in trying to uh, get the Senate and the legislature across the the finish line. Great. Matt, thanks a lot. Thank you. 
Katie Lannon joins us now. Hey, Katie. Hey, Colin. So you covered a lot of the action in the House uh, on Thursday around energy. And now the House and Senate have both passed energy bills, but they're taking different approaches. Tell us what the two different approaches are. Yeah, they're very different approaches. The Senate went with an omnibus bill that includes carbon pricing, net metering, extra hydro and wind procurements, and a more aggressive increase to the renewable portfolio standards than what the House adopted. The House did four different bills. Two of them deal with energy efficiency, and then the others do the the RPS increase and energy storage. So now it's going to be up to the Senate to decide how to respond, and it's going to be interesting to see what they do. Senator Mark Pacheco, who's one of the Senate's point people on energy, he said earlier this week before those four bills started moving in the House that there was no excuse not to move forward on energy, but that the end result didn't have to be the exact bill the Senate did. Now, on the House side, Representative Tom Golden has said that an omnibus bill would be difficult and the House would rather go piece by piece. And Katie, I would think that an omnibus uh, approach um, would be particularly difficult given that we've got just more than two weeks left here in in formal sessions in July. Uh, So what does this situation around the energy bills, what does it tell you about the relationship between the House and the Senate on energy? Yeah, I mean, that clock that you mentioned, Colin, makes really anything difficult this time of year. But this difference of opinions, difference of approaches, reflects somewhat of a longstanding dynamic between the House and the Senate, um, which you see play out in other policy areas as well. The Senate, especially under former President Rosenberg, had a practice of appointing their own kind of ad hoc committees and task forces to produce their bills that are usually pretty sweeping. Um, They did something similar on health care. And the House typically prefers to work within the, the traditional committee structure You know, we saw in January Rep. Jennifer Benson, who's one of the main carbon pricing proponents in the House, and of course there's carbon pricing in this Senate bill, she said then when the Senate bill came out that the House does prefer to work on bills that come out of the joint committees, which are House-controlled, because that way the House members have input. The House likes to work on bills they're a part of. Great. Well, Katie, you got me all energized. Thanks very much. (laughs) Something to look out for next week. Thanks, Colin. During a busy week, the Massachusetts House unanimously passed a bill attempting to curb the opioid epidemic, for instance, introducing medically-assisted addiction treatment in prisons. Andy Metzger's here with us, and he covered this for us uh, at State House News this week. Andy, tell us about this bill. Uh, yeah, well, uh, as you mentioned, one of the things it would do is uh, allow prisoners in a pilot, a two-year pilot, to receive medically-assisted treatment for substance abuse while they're behind bars. Uh, this would be a big deal for a lot of people because right now, once you're sentenced and you enter prison, you can no longer be treated with uh, medication like Suboxone. Um, it would be left to DPH and the DOC to figure out that particular piece of this if it became law. But there's a lot of other um, elements to it as well. Um, one would require hospital ERs to have medications like methadone or suboxone. Uh, those are opioid agonists um, to treat people who are in there on overdoses. Now, Andy, the House just passed this bill this week, and we've got uh, just more than, than, what, two weeks left in the informal sessions. Uh, and, and the Senate hasn't yet taken this bill up. Uh, what does the future look like for this bill and its chances to actually get to the governor's desk? Uh, cloudy, a little bit. It joins the crush of legislation that lawmakers are conceiving 
conceivably trying to uh, give to the governor before July 31st. But there are a number of bills there. The next stop would be the Senate, which has been the more liberal branch for the past few years. Um, So advocates might hope that some of the things that were not included in the House bill might make it into the Senate version. Um, One thing to look for there would be uh, so-called safe injection sites. That was not part of the House proposal, but it will have another um, chance to become law via the Senate. Um, But it's really anyone's guess because there's so many, there's just a crush of legislation. Great. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled for that one. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thank you, Colin. Formal legislative sessions end for the year July 31st, and Mike Norton is here to discuss the state of play in the legislature over the next two-plus weeks. What's happening, Mike? Well, let me look back briefly first, Colin. Things were happening fast this week, by the hour, really. After keeping a slow pace for an extended period, the House was suddenly in uh, hurry-up mode. They passed an economic development bill on Tuesday, opioid addiction and education financing bills on Wednesday, and four clean energy bills on Thursday. The Senate wasn't as busy, but they did approve an environmental bond bill on Thursday, as well as a bill aimed at eventually signing up 700,000 eligible but unregistered voters by having them automatically enroll when they interact with the Registry of Motor Vehicles or Mass Health. So-called auto voter registration bills that emerged from the House and Senate are, are very similar, and Governor Baker on Friday didn't raise any objections to them, so that one could become law before too long. But Mike, hasn't the legislature been passing major bills for months now? Uh, Are they setting themselves up for a big finish here? Probably, but not definitely. The landscape is still pretty murky. Most Democrats in the House and Senate are waiting for the pressure of deadlines to force their own leaders to reach consensus. And consensus was not exactly the watchword this week. Major bills are just beginning to move late in the session. And there are six other major bills approved this session by both branches that are still before conference committees. In June, lawmakers called for compromises on civics, education, veterans' benefits, and health care financing bills. So far, nothing. A bill designed to provide a new consumer credit protections? It's been in conference committees since May. Legislation taxing and regulating short-term rentals like Airbnbs? That's been in conference now for three months. So heading into next week, a lot of building insiders are finding it improbable that Democrats who hold supermajorities in both branches will cede power to Governor Baker by sending him bills so late in the session that they essentially nullify their own ability to respond to his amendments or vetoes. But this is proving to be not just any year. The Senate, they've been undergoing constant leadership shifts, and House and Senate leaders have not even been able to agree on the one bill they need to pass every year, with Massachusetts being the only state now without a fiscal 2019 budget. So there's a chill between branch leaders on the budget, and it's trickling down uh, to a reduction in confidence over the rest of the agenda. It's also reminding people that in Massachusetts, the important divide is between liberal and moderate Democrats rather than the right-left Democrat-Republican divide that drives much of the national politics. Thanks a lot, Mike. Next week's shaping up to be a doozy, and we'll be right back at it on Monday. Thanks very much for listening, and a special thanks this week to State House News Co-op Chris Triunfo, who managed the controls of the takeout this week to make sure we could bring it to you. Have a great weekend. State House Takeout is a production of the State House News Service. And for a daily fix of State House headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.